Welcome to the New Books Network. President Vladimir Putin, the son of a foreman at a railway carriage works, is today one of the most powerful individuals on earth. The Western press speculates about how long he can last. Many Russians think he's immovable. So what is the future for President Putin? Uh, Philip Short, a former BBC colleague of mine, has written a very well-reviewed and comprehensive biography of the man. Welcome to you, Philip Short. It took many, many years. It took eight years. <laughs> eight years may seem a long time, but it's pretty much par for the course for a you know, very complex biography of a very complex man like, like Putin. Uh, varied life, you know, sports, judo champion, KGB, going into politics, finishing up as part of the presidential administration and then becoming president. So, uh, yeah, it's, um, it's taken a lot of time and has been totally fascinating, I have to confess. But what I found most challenging and, and, and most intriguing about it was that Putin is an extre- extremely secretive man. He's opaque. He's in no sense open about what he does and about what he thinks, and he disguises his thoughts and motives. And to try to penetrate that shell behind which he hides everything as a biographer was a, an absolutely irresistible challenge. And that has meant enormous amounts of material, enormous numbers of people to talk to about him, people who were around him, who worked with him, who knew him, and who know him now. Putin's right in everybody's minds. He's on top of the news every day, what's happening in Ukraine. Emotions of extremely strong right across the, the globe, and for very obvious reasons. And that means that people are a little bit less willing to kind of look in a measured, sober way, at who he really is as a human being, as a politician, what his motives are, and where he came from. Right, so people are wanting you basically to demonise him at this time, and your your biography is trying to be more nuanced than that. It's trying to be more nuanced because, you know, saying John McCain was a famous one who said, uh, I look into his eyes and I see the letters KGB, and that's all there is to him. He's a thug and a murderer. Um, that makes good sound bites, but it doesn't actually help you to understand anything about who Putin is and where he's from. So, yeah, it is a problem. People want, uh, at the moment, a a very, very uh, hostile, pejorative, demonizing account. And I just don't think that actually helps us very much, because if you don't understand where Putin is coming from and what his motives are, it's very hard to see how uh, we can extricate ourselves from the current situation and how it's all going to end. Well, let's talk a bit about that background then and where he comes from. The mother, you have her as very protective, very, very keen on her son, not even working so as to bring him up, and, but quite a rough child, a child who would join in a fight. Very much so. And there is a wonderful quote from one of his um, one of his school friends, the guy he shared a desk with in his primary school, who said if he saw a fight, he couldn't resist getting into it, but that he had absolutely no fear. Uh, you know, he was a very slightly bought, slightly built, thin boy, not looking particularly aggressive or ferocious at all. But he would take on, this school friend said, you know, any hulking kid who was twice his size, he'd just go in into a frenzy, pulling out his hair, scratching him, fighting 
uh, as though it was the last fight in his life and never giving up. And he would win because he was so completely uncontrollable. And I think that is relevant. Uh, it's not that he's now completely uncontrollable. He's cold and calculating and, in his own terms, rational. But going into a fight and not giving up, never walking away from a fight, and a lowered sense of risk, uh, those are characteristics which I think we are seeing now in, in the war in Ukraine. And interestingly, when he um, was trained to go into, you know, doing his training to, for, for the KGB just before he got his first foreign post in, in, in Dresden, his KGB report said one of, his, one of his problems was he had a lowered sense of risk. Uh-huh. So that does sound very relevant. And, and it's just uh, on his sort of upbringing, as it were, again, still, he, he wanted to be a pilot, which I guess many people do if they're trying to get out of their uh, less privileged background. It's quite often a, an aspiration people have. But then it, it, that aspiration changed into wanting to join the KGB because of some movies he watched? In, in 1968, uh, there were a, a, a couple of movies. One was called 17 Moments of Spring. Uh, the other was uh, about a Russian spy in, East Germ- in, in Germany, in Nazi Germany, called Stirlitz. And he was very uh, taken with these movies and the idea that, as he wrote later, you know, one man can really make a difference through espionage and through patriotically representing his country and facing great dangers. It has to be said that a lot of kids of that age at that time in Russia thought exactly the same way. And the KGB um, recruitment, not recruitment centers, but their, their you know, local centers, the, the people would say, after each of these films, we get a, a load of youngsters coming along saying, please, how can I join? But in Putin's case, he did go along to the St. Petersburg, the big house, as the KGB headquarters was called there. He did go along and say, how can I join? And they, they basically said, well, we don't, we don't take walk-ins. Um, you've got to do your military training service, military service, and get a degree, preferably a law degree. And that's what decided him that he wasn't going to be a pilot, wasn't going to go into civil aviation. He really wanted to go into the, 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 the KGB. Going to law school was, I mean, like, as he said, like going to the moon. It was, it seemed absolutely out of the question. Uh, you had to have very good marks and you had to have a lot of luck because they only took 100, 100 students a year and all, almost all of those were mature students who had already done their military training, their, their conscription. And his family were very much against it. They said, you know, you've got a cushy career lined up if you go to a civil aviation institute and become a pilot and you're throwing it all away but he said that's what i want to do and i'm going to do it and he did but largely because he he was a sports a, a, a national level sportsman and in russian universities at that time soviet universities just like in american universities if you were a really good sports prospect, you got preferential uh, access and were, were a pre- preferential admission. And this national level sport was this sambo, this hand-to-hand combat? It's kind of a combination of judo, which was banned under Stalin because the people, the guy who'd introduced it into Russia was, was purged. So the sport itself was banned. And uh, sambo t- kind of took its place. It's a mixture of judo and Greco-Roman Greco, um, wrestling. 
Uh, it's much more physical. And that's what he started with. And he was extremely good at it. And then he went on to judo. And he said, you know, one of the things that uh, he really liked about judo was the ritual. Having been on the streets where everything was just, you bashed the other guy in the face. Judo was kind of ritualistic combat. And you took advantage of the other guy's strength. You turned the other guy's, your opponent's strength against him in judo. And again, if you look at Putin's modus operandi in politics, uh, especially foreign pol policy, that's very much what he does. Uh, he tries to see the, the, the other, where the other side is vulnerable and turn their strength, strength against them. The other striking thing to me about this law degree you described was, you know, the classless society of the Soviet Union had, of course, a class system like anywhere else. And there were privileged children, the children of the elite who were studying law. And then there was this boy from the streets in St. Petersburg. And, and he that must have helped form his personality. He said uh, that when he went to, to, to the law faculty, which was in a, a very beautiful area, right in Smolny, um, right, right next to the, the cities, the city government, uh, it, a beautiful part of St. Petersburg, that there were times when he really wished that his mother wasn't just a cleaner and his father wasn't just a foreman, but that they were a, a professor and assistant professor. So yes, he, he felt very much that uh, that he was not he, he'd gone into a different world and he felt it even more i think because he was still living with his parents in very humble circumstances uh, in a in a communal flat where there was a shared kitchen and a uh, a shared bathroom and well no proper bathroom at all um, shared lavatory but the bath bathroom was uh, you know nearby and a they went once a week down to the public baths on the streets, the street next door. So uh, the contrast between the world in which he'd grown up and the world in which he, he now found himself was, was pretty sharp. Well, those are all very interesting uh, influences on him. And then he got into the KGB and he got sent to East Germany. So just talk us through that period in East Germany. I think it's worth mentioning, before he got to East Germany, he uh, was uh, in the fifth directorate, uh, the fifth department, as it was called in the regions, which was the department which looked after dissidents. And he was in, in uh, a group who had uh, surveillance of the Orthodox Church, the Orthodox clergy as part of their thing, and also artists. Um, and he tried to hide it, but it's absolutely certain that he did it for about three years, two or three years. Then he he moved to um, the the first department, which looked after foreigners, which watched over foreigners and tried to recruit them with singularly little success in in, uh, in Leningrad in those days. I don't think they recruited a single foreigner. Um, and finally, uh, after one more year's training, went to East Germany which was not uh, what he'd wanted. He'd wanted to go to Bonn or to Vienna, uh, you know, German-speaking uh, territories, which were part of the West. And he was sent to East Germany because he, he, he didn't, I mean, he didn't do badly in his, his training, but he didn't do exceptionally well. So it was a rather kind of middling appointment. And I, I think must have undoubtedly have been a disappointment at a certain level. On the other hand, he was getting out of the Soviet Union, he was going abroad, and that was 
that was already quite something because it was given to very few to do so. There wasn't much that went on in Dresden. He basically hibernated. He put on a lot of weight. <laughs> he drank a lot of, uh, of German beer. He had a rather nice quiet time in a, in a very agreeable suburb of, of Dresden and traveled, took the family skiing in, in, the, um, in the Alps, the Saxon, Saxon Alps, uh, went to Czech, the Czech Republic to Prague and, and traveled around. Uh, it was a kind of interlude when he didn't actually do a great deal. Right. And, and what do you think, in terms of his personality formation, he took away from that period? There, there are two things. What he took away from the KGB, I, I feel quite strongly that Putin was already Putin before he joined the KGB. The KGB kind of added a layer of techniques, of, of uh, ways of creating legends about oneself, in particular, that is something which Putin has has done afterwards. He, you know, right through his his uh, his career, his political career, he's created myths about his, his earlier his earlier times, how he joined the KGB, how he left, how he got into politics. They're all basically legends, and when you strip them down, his accounts are in very large measure untrue. Now that's something he learned to do in the KGB. The other, another thing about legends, which he, he, one of the things he took away from, from his, that time, is that a legend serves for a certain period. And once it, it no longer is, is needed, it can be discarded. And you, you've seen this often enough that, for instance, when uh, uh, they, they took over Crimea in 2014, Putin denied absolutely that there were any Russian soldiers involved. These little green men were just just locals, he said. And then three months later, once it had all been done, he said, well, of course they were Russian soldiers. In other words, the lie, it doesn't matter that he seemed to be lying once the lie has served its purpose. And, and that's, that's something that was taken from the KGB as well. Then the whole business of how to approach people. Putin is often um, like a mirror to the person he's talking to. He, he projects himself, he presents himself in, in the way that he thinks his interlocutor would like to see him. That's a KGB technique too, and it, it's, frankly it's a CIA technique as well, at all intelligence agencies. He, he got a lot from the KGB, but it was adding to the basic personality that had already been formed. Putin fitted the profile of what the KGB wanted and looked for rather than Putin being formed and fashioned by the KGB once he became a member. Now, I want to get on to his ideas in a moment. But before we do that, I think we should just you know, take the career forward from East Germany to the time when he takes over take, and wins power. So can you just describe what you think are the important elements of that part of his life? When Putin came back from Dresden, it was in order to be posted to Leningrad, where he was to become the minder, as it were, of Anatoly Sobchak. And Sobchak was a very up-and-coming liberal politician, quite a figure, a charismatic politician, who went on to become mayor of Leningrad. And, I mean, Putin is always absolutely denied this. He's always um, said, oh, no, uh, K 
KGB had absolutely nothing to do with it. Um, I had been taught by Sobchak uh, when I was at law school and we happened to meet and he said, why don't you come and be my assistant? Um, it, one of the many legends that, that Putin fabricated. In fact, he was sent by the KGB and what happened was that as he started working for Sobchak, he, he distanced himself more and more from his KGB employers and his loyalties gradually shifted to Sobchak himself. And Sobchak was a very important figure in his life. He was a real mentor. Um, Putin had few illusions about him. Uh, he was, you know, he talked the talk. He was a wonderful liberal politician, but he was a pretty awful mayor. He was very bad at organizing things. He was a dilettante. He was, he was someone who, who, who loved being invited to Buckingham Palace and going and, and sorting out disputes between di different post-Soviet countries in Central Asia and elsewhere. You know, the great politician, but the nitty gritty of actually making a city of five million people work was, was not his thing at all. Putin rose extremely rapidly. He started off just as an assistant to Sobchak. He elbowed aside the other assistants. He became the indispensable person in Sobchak's uh, entourage. And indeed, he was very good at it. He was very highly organized. He was the guy who made the trains run on time, was what was said about him uh, in those days. He became deputy mayor, acting mayor, literally Two and a half years after he started in Leningrad, he was acting mayor of, when Sobchak was away, of, of a city of five million people, the second city in, in the Soviet Union. So it was a, an extraordinarily rapid ascension. But then Sobchak, dilettante as he was, refused to take seriously the, his re-election campaign, and he lost. He lost to one of his deputies. And that meant for Putin that that part of his career was was finished. He could have continued, but he didn't want to. He moved instead to Moscow, where he had a lot of friends, a lot of people who worked in St. Petersburg with him, and uh, again, very quickly rose up through the ranks uh, of the presidential administration, becoming in charge of regions, in charge of uh, the Control Commission, which was a very kind of powerful organization that was, uh, its, its mandate was to ensure basically that financial discipline was maintained, that the leaders of the regions behaved as they, as they were supposed to and didn't squirrel away money. Um, and then finally, head of the FSB, uh, which was the successor to the KGB, because Yeltsin decided, Yeltsin, uh, who had president uh, decided that he he needed um, a, a kind of steel spine to his administration and people from the security forces the KGB the FSB above all uh, would give him that steel spine and Putin uh, from that position kind of made himself once again as he had done in Leningrad made himself indispensable so that when Yeltsin was looking for a successor and finding a suitable successor had been very much on his mind since he was re-elected in 1996, he found that Putin was the most suitable candidate and appointed him acting prime minister in August 1999. The war with Chechnya was uh, starting up again. Putin <laughs> was extremely successful 
brutally so, but extremely successful in um, uh, repressing the insurrection in Chechnya. And uh, in December of that year, Yeltsin said he was going to resign. His health was already pretty pretty ropey and would appoint Putin as his as acting president and his successor in his place. So it was an extraordinarily rapid rise. But it was a time, you know, when it's not just in Russia, the same thing happened in Ukraine, when uh, the old leadership had, had been removed. And the opportunities for young people who had ambition, even if they hid their ambition, and Putin did hide his ambition, to rise the, the, very rapidly, the opportunities were absolutely extraordinary. And Putin took full advantage of that. A couple of questions about that. When you say with Sobchak, he, he started to drift away a bit from the KGB. Does that mean he actually embraced Sobchak's liberal ideas? Was he for a bit a liberal? Those who worked with him thought he was. People like Kudrin and Chubais. Kudrin, who uh, became the finance minister. Chubais, who was uh, uh, the, the, the guy who oversaw the privatizations in the 1990s. They regarded Putin as a liberal um, on the same basis that, that they were. There are newspaper interviews that he gave back in the 1990s. Yes, he did espouse liberal thinking. And even for the first years after he became president, there was, you know, a 13% flat tax rate, pressing, pushing, promoting the market economy. He, he, he was genuinely convinced that that was the way Russia should go. It didn't, in the end, work out quite like that, as is often the case. But those were the original intentions. And I don't think one should underestimate that. People tend to say, oh, he was just, you know, it was all a facade. He wasn't really a liberal. He wasn't really in favor of the market. He was just kind of hiding his his base instincts and his, his real intentions. That's simply not true. He was convinced that in the in the early days that Russia's place was was as part of 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 what he called the civilized world, and that a market economy and a liberal economy with a degree of democracy. He, he was never kind of terribly enthusiastic about democracy, but a degree of democracy. That was the way that Russia should go. And the second thing I wanted to ask you about that was when he made the move from Leningrad to Moscow. I mean, that's the difficult bit, I guess. I mean, once you're in Moscow, you know, you're, you can climb up the system if you've got the ambition and the capability. But getting to Moscow into the presidential administration, was that with the help of the KGB? No, it wasn't with the help of the KGB at all. Um, it was with the help of people who uh, had been previously working with him in, in Leningrad and had been moved by Yeltsin uh, into the presidential administration in Moscow. I mentioned Kudrin. He, uh, he he was already the the who became finance minister. He was already in the presidential administration. So was Chubais. Uh, the deputy prime minister Bolshakov was a former Sobchak aide. So there was a whole kind of network of ex St. Petersburgers, ex Leningraders who were in uh, the presidential administration in Moscow and who helped. Putin. You, you ask about whether the KGB helped. No, he, he never formally left the KGB. And this is yet another thing that he's been dishonest about and has hidden. But his links to the KGB by 1993-94 were pretty tenuous. It, 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 he had really switched 
from one camp to the other. And uh, there were people in, in the KGB in Leningrad who said at that time in the early 90s, early to mid 90s, we simply don't know where Putin's loyalties are anymore. You know, he was hiding, he was so gray that even in the KGB, the people who had worked with him before didn't really know where he was, where he was heading and where his true loyalties lay. Remind us which year he took over the presidency. He became uh, acting president on, on New Year's Eve 2000, uh, December the 31st, 1999. He was then elected and uh, the inauguration was in May 2000. And, and so that's 22 years in, in, in power I mean, and there were different periods of that when he was uh, you know, prime minister or president and so on. But nonetheless, basically 22 years in power. Can you split those 22 years up into, into phases at all or periods? Because you, you've described the beginning where he's basically markets and constrained democracy. I mean, now we see a very strongly nationalist leader. How would you describe the progression? It fits pretty well into terms. Putin's first two terms, they were four-year terms, so from 2000 to 2008, uh, were the time of uh, a fair degree of democracy. Um, I mean, Russians really did have, uh, during that time, a lot of freedom of, of the press. State television was brought very firmly under the state's control, uh, under, under Putin's control. But the, the newspapers were free to say pretty much what they wanted. There were a few kind of no-go areas, but on the whole, they were, they were quite, um, quite unrestrained. The market, w- w- was, the market economy was also relatively free. He did clamp down in that period on the oligarchs, in inverted commoners, in other words, on the business magnates, basically telling them, you can do what you like in business, but don't put your finger into the political world. You've got to stay away from politics. It was broadly fairly free. In foreign policy, it was certainly at the beginning very pro-Western. Putin uh, wanted good relations with the United States. He saw Russia's future as, as, as... being integrated into, into the wider world. That changed over the first two terms. And by the end of the second term, it was beginning to get very sour indeed. Then you had an interlude of, of four years when Medvedev was, was president and Putin was prime minister. And that was very much kind of an in-between period. Putin left it open as to whether he would return to power uh, after Medvedev's first term or or whether uh, Medvedev would have a second term. In the end, he decided to come back. And his election in 2012 uh, and the parliamentary elections which preceded it were very contentious. There were huge demonstrations. People were very fed up that Putin was coming back to power. When I say people, I mean basically the middle classes in in the big cities. The people in the countryside were perfectly happy to see Putin back again. That was the beginning of a a new phase. Then you had, next turning point was the annexation of Crimea in 2014. And the eight years that followed that uh, up to the present were a time of, of limited but still rather nasty warfare in eastern Ukraine. And during that period, Putin became more and more nationalistic, especially over the last four years, but the whole of that eight years, uh, repression has been stepped up 
in Russia is become, I wouldn't even say much less democratic, it's become a lot more dictatorial, and people's freedoms have been seriously curtailed. But again, the great majority who live in the provinces are not too bothered by that. They are becoming bothered because, of, and we'll go on to talk about this, I'm sure, because of what's happening in the war in Ukraine, but not to the point of withdrawing their support. That shift to nationalism and to dictatorial methods, what do you think led to that? I mean, many of these leaders, after a long time, are so surrounded by sycophants, they become hubristic, don't they? And I mean, I'm sure you've seen that yeah, everywhere. And I've, I've seen it over the years in, in many countries where leaders just lose their judgment after a bit because they begin to believe that they're so brilliant and always right. I mean, is that part of it? Or was, was it the people around him feeding him ideas? Was it some appeal to his youth of Russian greatness? What, what drove it? One of the key things was the deterioration of, of relations with the West. By 2008, Putin was kind of giving up on the United States. Uh, he believed that the United States would never take into account Russia's interests, that basically the, the American administration was determined to make Russia follow what, what, whatever um, America construed as its own interests. And I, I won't, won't say Putin believed that at that time that America wanted to bring Russia to its knees, but gradually that that kind of thinking uh, became more and more prevalent. And whenever you have bad relations with the West, historically in Russia, freedoms are limited more and more at home. It happened. Uh, it happens the other way as well. You know, when relations with the West are good and there's a detente, uh, freedoms increase within Russia. So those two always tend to happen in parallel, and it's been a kind of gradual change over the years as uh, relations with the the West have deteriorated and uh, freedoms have been increasingly restricted uh, at home. He's become more nationalistic, more inward-looking, looking also to, to Asia, but looking to Asia uh, as a partner, basically because there was no possibility of, of, in his view, of improved relations with the West. So these things have, have, have gone together. And I see it as a kind of Shakespearean tragedy. This young, very intelligent, very bright leader, starting off with the, the best intentions in the world, or not maybe the best in the world, but on the whole, rather good intentions uh, for what he wanted to do in Russia to make it prosperous, to make it respected again, uh, to make people's lives better. And gradually, all that has frittered away. And uh, he's ended up, uh, or is ending up, doing much of the reverse. Yeah, and, and just as a quote, which really brings home the importance of the, this issue of the Western attitude to Russia, uh, this is Putin, they deceived us, they duped us like a con artist. The whole so-called Western bloc formed by the United States in its own image is an empire of lies. I mean, it, it, it's really bitter, isn't it? That is a very recent quote. It's, it's uh, during the, the, this year. Yes, that, that's where he's got to now. But it didn't happen all at once. It happened very slowly. But, uh, you know, Bill Burns, who was probably the best U.S. ambassador to Moscow for a, a long time, and who's now head of the CIA, wrote that 
it, it, a kind of train wreck was written into the equation from the very beginning because both sides, the United States and Russia, suffered from delusions. The American delusion was that after the collapse of the Soviet Union, Russia would follow meekly in America's footsteps. And Russia's delusion was that after the collapse of the Soviet Union, Russia had overthrown communism, wanted to become a democracy, America would accept it as an equal. Now, America would never accept Russia as an equal, and Russia would never follow meekly in America's footsteps. So the thing was doomed, and and no matter how much individual leaders wanted it to, to succeed and the relationship to be good, there was this tragic inevitability there that it was bound to end in conflict. And have we ended up in a place where the the metric for him now is Russian greatness and Russian territory? That's how he measures success. Is that right? Respect for Russia, I think, is absolutely the key. Russian greatness, yes, if you say, well, you know, in order to be respected, Russia has to be great again. I, I wouldn't argue with that. I think Putin does deep down feel that. But above all, uh, it's a question of the United States respecting Russia's priorities. Territory, I, I mean, it's often said that this is an imperial power play in, in Ukraine, and you can certainly see it that way. But I see it very much more as Ukraine being a victim of what is fundamentally deep down a struggle between Russia and the West, a struggle between Russia above all and the United States. And Ukraine is the kind of sacrificial victim in the middle because it's Ukrainians who are doing the fighting, uh, not Americans, not, not other Westerners, and it's Ukrainians who are dying. But it's not, it's not entirely at least about Ukraine. It's maybe not even principally about Ukraine. Ukraine is an element because Russia wants Ukrainian neutrality. It wants to bring Ukraine to heal and uh, to bring it back into the Russian world. You say it's got a very funny way of going about this, and I would agree with you. But the, the, the basis, the basis of what's happening is a struggle between Russia and the West. And that's why the Chinese are sitting on the fence and kind of tacitly backing the Russians, because they too want the West to be... Uh, taught a lesson or at least taught that it has to respect other countries' priorities. Right. And, and fitting into all of that, a couple of moments we should we should refer to probably, the collapse of the Soviet Union, which he's always described as a, as a catastrophe, not, I guess, through the loss of the communist values of the Soviet Union, but the loss of a great Russia. And then there's also Kosovo, where he, he remains extremely angry about what the United States did. Could you just talk us through those? Yeah, he doesn't bother about, I mean, communism, to Putin has said often enough, you know, communism was a lovely dream, uh, but it was never going to work. Um, and it led Russia astray, basically, from its, uh, its, it, the course it should have followed during the 70 years that the, the communists were in charge. Um, so it's not, he doesn't regard the collapse of the Soviet Union as a tragedy um, because of the ideology but because the Soviet Union was a great and respected power, uh, a great power which respected, maybe not, but feared, um, which others uh, ha had to be very wary of. He certainly, like Russia, 
once again to be in that sort of situation where it's respected and, and yes, feared as well. Kosovo has been an issue not just for Putin, but for all all the, the Russian elite ever since uh, the late 1990s, because uh, they say uh, the West showed an absolute double standard. The West approved uh, Kosovo's um, secession from uh, Serbia. Uh, it had been part of Serbia until then. And it the, the, the West didn't accept the same the same criteria for Crimea. Now, this is a very complicated argument, but I think it, 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 it can be said that, yes, there is a kind of double standard, perhaps an explicable double standard, a justifiable double standard, but to the Russians, it's absolutely unjustified, and Putin continues to feel very strongly about it. It's one of the, the kind of original sins, if you like, in the, that has, has gradually, its poison has seeped into the relationship and has continued for the, the 20 or 25 years since, since it all happened. I'd like to ask you about some specific issues which just sort of rely on the huge amount of work you've done on this and just give us your take, really, mm-hmm. on, on what you think happened and why. So the first one is whitewashing of Stalinism. Did he, does he, and if he does, why does he? He does increasingly now. Um, I wouldn't say whitewash, it's uh, just ignoring. It's uh, making making the Stalinist legacy not something which should be discussed. It's a divisive legacy, so let's leave it aside. Uh, there had been times, I'm thinking of uh, 2007, 2008, when Putin was much more concerned. And in, indeed, w- w- he gave a number of speeches in which he very clearly condemned what had happened during the Stalin period. Now, he basically doesn't want to think about it. He doesn't want other people to think about it. Better just to leave it be. Another issue. Does he murder and poison his enemies at home and abroad? Yes, but not to the extent that is generally assumed to be the case. He was directly responsible for uh, Litvinenko's death. That had his approval. It had his fingerprints all over it. There is absolutely no question about that. This is the murder with polonium of uh, Litvinenko, uh, who, uh, who was was uh, a, a defector from the, K- the KGB and who was living in London. He died an agonizing death, having been poisoned with radioactive polonium. Um, uh, the the uh, attempted murder, the attempted um, poisoning with Novichok of uh, Navalny, um, that also had Putin's fingerprints all over it. He clearly ordered that himself. But other other murders, which people say, oh, he did that, he did that, he did the other. Anna Politkovskaya, for example, who was shot, he was a journalist who was a, a very strong critic of, of Putin and particularly of, of Putin's war in Chechnya. She was, she was shot in 2007 and that was the work of Ramzan Kadyrov, the, the Chechen leader. So was the killing of uh, Boris Nemtsov, the former deputy prime minister who was killed near the Kremlin in, in uh, 2015. Uh, that was Kadyrov's people who did it too. And Putin bears responsibility for those murders as well because 
he did not attempt to punish Kadyrov. Kadyrov was far too useful for him, uh, keeping Chechnya under control. And uh, uh, so he, he, there was absolutely no follow-up, which has meant that a climate of impunity is, exists and has existed for years in Russia under Putin. People who have power can literally get away with murder and know that they will not be pursued. Now, that is Putin's responsibility, but it's, it's not quite the same in, in those cases as giving a direct order for people to be killed. Although presumably it's impossible, impossible to be sure that, you know, Putin didn't say, could you get this done for me? I mean, I hesitate because uh, to be sure, you know, when you say to be sure, that implies kind of 100% certitude. And yes, I don't think one can be 100% sure. I think one can be 99% sure that Putin did not order those murders. Um, first of all, they would in no, neither of them were in any way advantageous to him. Um, secondly, the evidence that uh, that that Kadyrov did it without Putin knowing um, uh, in advance is really quite quite substantial. Um, nothing, nothing, nothing honestly that we know would enable us to say, well, perhaps Putin actually did sign off on them. I don't see that. I think the, the, the evidence is overwhelming that in the case of Nemtsov and Politkovskaya, it was Ramzan Kadyrov's initiative and he gave the orders for it to be done. That's very interesting. And, and what about Sergei Skripal in Salisbury in the UK, who had been a big critic of Putin? Well, he hadn't really been a big critic of Putin. He hadn't, you know, he hadn't had a public profile uh, before he was uh, the the attempted murder. I think in that case, uh, the again, one cannot be absolutely sure. Skripal is more kind of a grey area in in the sense that Putin could have uh, could have approved it. Uh, I'm not saying that's impossible, but you don't have to posit that to explain it, because. The G- Skripal betrayed, this is what defectors do, and Skripal was a defector, betrayed uh, a very large number of his GRU colleagues. It's not that they were killed, but they were unable to operate afterwards because their covers had been blown. Intelligence services, and this is the Soviet, uh, the Russian military intelligence, the, uh, the main, main administration, as it's called, the GU, but people still call it the GRU, they do not forgive defectors who betray their colleagues. So I think it, it, it's, it's more likely in Skripal's case that the GRU uh, felt it had uh, space in which to take an initiative of its own and try to neutralize Skripal, rather than that they actually went to Putin and Putin said, yes, okay, do it, or indeed that Putin said, uh, yes, I, I want you to do it. The cult of personality. He started off quite reluctant about that, didn't he? But then really embraced it. Well, he really embraced it, yes. But it's kind of pretty modest compared with what Stalin had uh, or the posthumous cult of Lenin, uh, let alone the cult of Mao in China, let alone the cult of Mao in China. Uh, So, yes, there is a cult of personality, but it's kind of within bounds. 
it, it's been there've been very specific little bits of it. You know, the the calendars going back 10, 10, 15 years when he was younger, showing him on bare torsoed on on bareback on on horseback, swimming in rivers and all that kind of stuff. Uh, that was particularly uh, obvious when Medvedev was president, Putin was prime minister, and Putin wanted to show that he was, you know, he was still in there. He wasn't kind of gradually retreating. He he still wanted to keep in the forefront of, of uh, public attention. It hasn't, there hasn't been nearly as much of that since. Um, and now the image up, up to the time when the, the Ukraine war started was becoming much more kind of father of the nation, um, even grandfatherly. He started talking about his children, his grandchildren, which is something he'd never done before. And there was a remarkable picture uh, of, of him uh, giving Easter greetings, where he really looked like a patriarch, with uh, you know the Russian Easter cake uh, on a table beside him and the fire blazing behind him uh, in in the chimney in the fireplace. Th- that cult has has diminished. Uh, you're not seeing it in the same way anymore. A couple of questions about his personality. Now he's famous for not showing his emotions. I mean, that's one of the yeah, strong characteristics he has. Can you give us an example of of him, yeah, really doing that very well, not showing his emotions? And are there any of him when the mask slips? And he does. There are times when the mask slips. It's it's usually when something has really got to him in a very personal way. One case was uh, when a. a, a his best friend at university, and I know we're going back away, but his best friend at university died in a in, in a, a judo accident. And at the funeral, everyone was very struck by the way that Putin looked absolutely impassive, um, stone-faced, uh, showing no emotion at all. Only when they got with just the family present to the graveside and the body was being lowered into the grave, uh, he broke down completely in floods of tears and was absolutely inconsolable. He'd been bottling it it all up. Um, and there have been one or two cases since then, but it's very, very unusual. The, the way he tends to to behave is not to show anger. And he said, you know, if 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 I get angry and people see I'm angry, I get I'm I'm cross with myself. I think I'm showing weakness. It's uh, to, to let to expose what you're really feeling is a kind of weakness to Putin. He does keep it all all hidden away. He never raises his voice. Um, again, there've been lots of descriptions by people who work with him very closely that he doesn't he doesn't show anger in that way. When he's really cross, he speaks more and more quietly and more and more coldly. But he, uh, that's, that's the only sign that something is really going wrong. He does seem cold, but, but you, you made the point he's also very loyal to people who've been good to him. Yes, he values loyalty. It's, uh, it's a bit of a one-way street. <laughs> um, you say he's loyal to people who've been good to him. There are exceptions. I'm thinking of a health minister, uh, Shevchenko, who was, who was very good to him and who really helped Sobchak um, when Sobchak was mayor of St. Petersburg and the, this, this guy was the head of a hospital. When uh, Shevchenko ran, ran into trouble, no, Putin didn't help him. He didn't... Um, he didn't kind of go out of his way to make sure he was all right. Loyalty with Putin 
increasingly, as time has gone on, has become a one-way street. In a way, that's not surprising because, you know, he is the pivot of an extremely highly personalized regime. I don't like using words like czar because he he doesn't really behave like a czar. But he is an, in the position uh, which the czars used to hold, that he is absolutely the, the keystone uh, on which everything else depends. And if you're in that position, you, you don't show loyalty. You're kind of above that. That's, that's not what your role is anymore. Just before we discuss Ukraine at the end of this, can you, yeah, you've written this book and it, it, it... Yeah, it has been very well reviewed, but a lot of people are making the point that you're not putting forward the stereotypical, he's a madman, he's a monster sort of view of Putin. What do you think most people get wrong about Putin? Gosh, <laughs> that's, you're asking me to put my, myself into their heads. <laughs> <laughs> well, you must come across all this criticism. Yeah, you've read reviews saying, oh, this is very generous to Putin. Yes, um, yes, so, there, are, there are people, uh, I, I, there are indeed people who, reviewers, who said, oh, you're giving him the benefit of the doubt, or, you know, you're not understanding what a terrible person he really is. And uh, I think um, that tends to be the reaction from um, specialists who've spent a large part of their lives and have very develop very fixed ideas about uh, who Putin is. And we live in a time where if you, many people do have very fixed ideas, and we live in a time where you're many, many are not prepared to engage seriously with those who, uh, who hold a different view. And that I think is, is one factor. But to go back to your question, what do people get wrong about Putin? I think it was Ed Lucas who who said in his his review, uh, Ed Lucas of the Economist, that you know he's not a cardboard cutout. He is actually a human being, and I think one of the one of the big problems is that we tend to caricature him and show him as yes, a kind of devil incarnate, but all black. It's much more difficult for people to accept. Well, actually, you know. Most Russians now live better than they have at any under any previous leader. It's difficult for people accept, to accept that, even with the repression, the added repression that that has piled in over the last few years in Russia, uh, the much more dictatorial nature of the system, it's still a lot better than it, it was before, and that does not in any way excuse what Putin has done. But to paint everything kind of monochromatic black isn't helpful. And I think it is one of the things that people get wrong. And you don't really understand why, why a system is as it is, why people support Putin, if, if you keep demonizing him and saying that he, he's just a monster uh, who has um, installed a kleptocracy. You know, there are all these, these words which have become very popular, kleptocracy, a fascist system, and so on and so forth. I don't think that helps. As is often the case in these interviews, it takes us you know, a good while uh, to understand the history before we can then uh, ask the question, where's this headed? Uh, and so let's just do that at the end. And we, obviously that means Ukraine. There's talk of, you know, from him of the nuclear threat. There's the possibility of a very long grinding, unresolved conflict. There's the remote possibility it would seem a negotiated 
uh, settlement. From your knowledge of the man, where is this headed? I don't think we are about to see the use of tactical nuclear weapons in the very near future. I don't think we can rule it out completely either. One of the things that makes me makes me a little bit sceptical about Putin and, and using tactical nuclear weapons in Ukraine is that he's talking about it all the time. Usually when he wants to do something, he likes it to be completely out of the blue and unanticipated and taking everyone by surprise. He's been talking so much about nuclear weapons that one wonders if if it's actually something which he's a stick he's brandishing, but which he doesn't intend to use. That said, if he's really up against it, you know, this is not a fight he's going to walk away from. I, I don't see that at all. And if he's really up against it uh, and, and backed into a corner, I don't think anything should be completely ruled out. I say not in the near future, because I think there are a lot of other things he can do first. We're, we're seeing these missile bombardments of Ukrainian cities, or Ukrainian infrastructure. That's one thing the Russians can step up. They can step up cyber warfare. There are, I'm sure, other things that are possible for them before you get to the stage where he might consider using tactical nuclear weapons. But the real problem with, with Ukraine is that the Ukrainians, understandably, very bravely, very courageously, are determined to push the Russians back. They have no interest in negotiations at this point, and they, they, they want to win. And the West is helping them to, to try to win. The Russians cannot accept anything re resembling defeat. So there really is no path at the moment to a negotiated settlement. One could say, and I think, you know, in some ways, the, the, the kind of result that might eventually, in theory, uh, be reached would be a sort of armistice, where Russia holds enough of Ukrainian territory for Putin to be able to present it as a victory. And the, the West would be able to say, well, we, we stopped Putin taking over the whole of Ukraine. So, uh, you know, we've, we've shown that we are reliable guarantors uh, for our East European partners. That's in theory. How you could ever get there is really, if, I mean, I don't know, I don't believe anyone uh, in the White House or anywhere else has any idea of, of how that kind of interim passage is going to be negotiated, it's going to be, it's going to be traversed. And no one can tell you honestly how it's going to end. And everything you know about Putin, I presume, would tell you that right now, whatever's happening in Moscow, he will be very aware of the need to keep an eye on his back to make sure that there's no internal dissent that could jeopardise his position. He has kind of battened down the hatches pretty effectively. Um, he's built a system... Partly, uh, you know, he, he watched what happened to Gorbachev back in, in, uh, in 1990 when there was a coup against Gorbachev. And Gorbachev had failed to, uh, to secure his back. Putin learned from that and he has created a system where the different factions of the security services are so linked uh, to him and uh, so balanced among themselves that it would be very, very difficult for them to get together and, and threaten him. This is why I'm very sceptical about a palace coup. It, it's not inconceivable, 
but it would be really difficult to organize and I just don't see it happening at, at this stage with any kind of mass popular movement that's completely out of the question as as things are at the moment again there is no way in a country like Russia with the police presence the security presence there is and the degree of repression there's no way that Russians can organize uh, a, a real kind of insurrection against Putin so I I, I, I think he's um, he he is relatively secure but it does depend how how the fight goes in Ukraine if it goes really badly for him then that situation could change so almost everything for Putin uh, for the West for the Ukrainians does depend on how it's going to work out on the battlefield. Philip Short, thanks so much for giving us uh, this time to you know, give us the benefit of all the research you've done. Thank you. Uh, nice to talk to you.